So before I begin my talk this evening, I first want to invite you to consider the way that you're listening to the Dharma talk. The, the Buddha speaks about how listening is one of the profound ways to transmit the Dharma teachings. And so it's usually encouraged to uh, be in a posture that is receptive and alert. So want to bring in that consideration tonight as you listen to the teachings as part of our practice. Since the practice is a practice of waking up, uh, being alert, we want to see what most supports that for you as we participate in the teachings this evening. So this has been a very full two days. I know it, it certainly has been for me. My sense is it also has been for you. Um, we've had a few different invitations. The first day we had Deborah's invitation in her guided meditation to experience ourselves as the great mother, to walk in to the experience itself so that we know the qualities. We know that experience of the Great Mother. And today, Anna spoke about the mandala, the mandala that holds and includes all the paradoxes in this one formation, in this one circle. And what's being reflected to us is what's possible for us as human beings, as women, a way we can experience ourselves. But this is not something that we're being asked to experience in the future. We're being asked to experience it now. And these teachings, these teachings are always about now. This is, these teachings are not about postponement. It's not about waiting. It's not about projecting something into the future. They're about what we can know right here and now. These, these teachings of immediacy, of presence, the here and now reality. And so tonight I want to speak about uh, one of the conundrums. This is an interesting word. I don't often use this word conundrum. But this is what we are, ex probably most of us are experiencing is a kind of conundrum about these teachings that have been offered so far. A conundrum is also a kind of paradox, where two things seem contradictory to each other. In this case, perhaps, how we may be experiencing ourselves in real time, which has to do, which we may experience as much more in our conditioning and our personality and in our what we might call stuff, you know, the stuff of life. And this vision for us of being the great mother or the mandala, that which holds all the paradoxes, the opposites. So the conundrum that we might be feeling is how can I be the great mother right now if I'm really in my stuff? If I've got all of my conditioning, my past, the, 
the memories, the difficulties, the challenges. I've got my anger, my grief, my sadness, my fears. I've got that all here with me. This can't possibly be the expression of the great mother or the great mandala. And this is what I want to explore tonight because certainly if the great mother, when we talk about a mother, a mother is what gives birth. We talk about the great mother. The mother is what gives birth. In this case, the great mother, the divine mother, gives birth to all formations. It gives birth to the universe. It gives birth. She gives birth to this, all that's here, all that we know, all that we experience, all that we feel. This is the universe. This is all there is. This is everything right here. The past is already gone. The future is not born. This is it. So if the great mother isn't right here, giving birth to all of this, then where is she? She's not hidden somewhere. She's not hiding out. Why would she do that? That would not be very benevolent, you know? She's right here. So if the great mother is the great mother, it means she's giving birth to all formations of this life. That means all formations in our mind, all formations in our feelings, all forms in our body, all forms of expressions, the trees, the animals, the gardens, the birds, the, the everybody in this room, we are being birthed. We are being birthed every moment. And it means that she is manifesting all forms, all forms that are dark, that we might call dark or negative or difficult or challenging, and all forms that are light and beautiful and expansive and vast. All forms of the universe is the manifestation, is the expression of the Great Mother. There is one of the, one of the goddesses that really manifests this in the Hindu tradition is Shakti, is the Shakti goddess, who is, is the energetic, creative formation of this Great Mother who is giving birth, birth to everything in every moment. That is what's here. She is spacious, she is inclusive, she is awake. These are qualities that Julie spoke about last night, the spacious, inclusive awareness that is prajna paramita, that is here, that is what we are experiencing in this moment. So in that embrace, in the embrace of the Great Mother, all this, this op, that which seems to be opposite, the dark and the light, the negative, the positive, they collapse into one being, one manifestation, one mandala. And, and we're giving voice to that, we're giving language to that, we're giving words to that, and we're now calling that here the Great Mother. And, as, and we have a symbol right here for us as Prajnaparamita. But in the beginning of the first night of the retreat, we, we threw out all kinds of names, 
through the, the whole lineage of the feminine forms that have represented this great mother. The great mother giving birth, that's what mothers do. That's why she's called a mother. So this is what I want to explore tonight. I want to explore this conundrum. How can it be? How can it be that everything that I'm experiencing right now is a manifestation of the Great Mother? That it's not like I have to get somewhere else. I have to look some other way. I have to be some other way to be her. How can we actually expand our view big enough, wide enough to include another way of looking. Because truly, all paths of practice are only dealing with our view. That's all paths of practice do, is they just help us shift our view so that we're seeing things a little bit differently. The truth is, not that much changes not that much changes. We just start seeing things differently. One of the great um, Zen, Zen koans, kind of spiritual puzzles that I like, that I've always liked, is this old saying, before Zen or before practicing Zen, mountains are mountains and trees are trees. While treading the path of Zen, mountains are thrones of the spirits, and trees are the voices of wisdom. We start to see things. They become alive, as we've been speaking about. It's like trees. I look at a tree, and a tree is no longer just a tree, but it's this glittering manifestation of something much more vast and much more profound that I could have known. Or the mountains, as it says here, the mountains are thrones for the spirits. And we have this whole sense of something being completely newly discovered, perceiving reality in a whole different way. And then the last line of this koan is when, when one realizes then, mountains are mountains and trees are trees. And so what that means is that it's not as if everything, everything goes back just the way it was before, but we see that which is there in a new way, in a fresh way, with fresh eyes. We see not only does it appear as a mountain, but it's more than that. There's more vitality, there's more energy, there's more, well, you can make it into anything you want. It's a mandala. It has color and shape and glitter and it's uh, dancing and thrones and we can do anything we want with it. So what Anna was speaking about today, the imagination, the world comes alive. It's, it, things aren't just so fixed and so solid and, and, and so static. And this is what happens for us when we are seeing from the vantage point of what we call ego, or ego self, which is who we usually take ourselves to be, this kind of solid, static entity that we think we know, and this is who I am, and this is, these are the, this is what I know about myself, and that's the way it is. 
And for most people, there isn't much more investigation than that. I'm a woman, I'm this age, I'm this kind of health, I have this job, I have these children, I have this kind of life, I do these sorts of things. And that's kind of ordinary reality. We call that the ordinary, conventional reality. But for those of us who are spiritual seekers, that's not enough. It's not good enough. It's like that's, so there's got to be more. There's got to be something more to this life than just that. And so we start looking more deeply, and we start to investigate this one that I call myself. We start to explore what's true here, what's true about this way, this one, this, this person who I take myself to be. Is it really true, the stories that I... That I, that I have about myself and my life and, and the things that are happening in my life, what's really true? And as we investigate that and we, do the, we, we, we follow the path of spiritual practice, things start to open up for us in ways that we couldn't actually imagine. Mountains become thrones of the spirit. Trees become voices of wisdom. Everything starts to shift. Everything starts to change. When we talk about ego, there's a definition that I like very much from my teacher Hamid Ali, who says that ego is a psychic structure that is based on crystallized beliefs about who we are and what the world is. These beliefs are formed in our early childhood and give rise to a solid structure or a belief in a particular identity. So when we talk about this ego self, which in Buddhism there's a lot of uh, um, exploration around this self, concept of self, who I take myself to be, and so this sense of self, I like this very much when Hamid talks about crystallized beliefs. Because it means that what we're thinking and believing gets crystallized. And I like to think of that as a crystal, because if you think of a crystal, it's kind of um, hard and a little rough and has points, but it's translucent and it's kind of sparkly, you know? So it's not that the essence of who we are isn't seen or felt through that crystal. It's just that it's hard, and, and, and it's fixed. It has, it has defined boundaries. And what we start to explore in our practice are those beliefs that we're taking to be true, and that starts to break up. It breaks up this particular identity this particular sense of who I take myself to be. If we are only seeing the world or seeing ourselves from this vantage point of ego or this, these crystallized beliefs, there's a way we are disconnected from the true reality. We're not able to sense or to feel that which is more subtle, 
more refined, more profound or sacred in some way. It's not that that isn't here. It's just that those that access gets covered over or or um, uh, unavailable to us because the belief structures feel more true than that sacred ground. It's not that it's not true or real. It's just that can't can't touch it, can't feel it. So the practices, the spiritual practices, we might say are a kind of solvent. They, the practices, the teachings start to dissolve that hardness, just as if you put some crystals in some solvent, they would dissolve into fluidity, into fluid. And we, we, it's not that the um, essence of that crystal disappears. It's there, but it's become something different, a different quality. When we start to feel into that which is more true and real, we start to experience something that feels more fluid, feels more what we might call insubstantial, less solid, less fixed, Uh, more uh, impersonal, even has a kind of impersonal quality to it. And we start to feel even a blissful, kind of a blissful, sweet quality to that experience as well. And some people here in the circle, when we've explored this together, have said, you know, I feel, I feel the pain, and yet even in the pain, there's a kind of sweetness that comes through when I'm really here for my experience, when I feel my experience directly. It's not so solid, not just a hard block of pain, but something else starts to come through there. Joni Mitchell the wonderful artist, singer, she says, everything comes and goes, marked by lovers and styles of clothes. <laughs> Another way of talking about that sacred reality. Everything comes and goes. But from the ego's point of view, when we don't have connection to that fluid ground of being, that sacred ground of being, then we think, I think, that I have to take care of everything, that I am responsible for getting reality to give me what I want, because I think that's the only way I can get it, is in the conventional or the objectified reality. I don't know that there's any other reality, so I'm very busy manipulating reality to find some kind of satisfaction, to find some kind of contentment, some kind of ease, some kind of lack of stress. And this, in, in, in the Buddhist teaching, this is called samsara. It means we're on the treadmill, the treadmill, the wheel 
of, of, of becoming, of trying to get somewhere, of seeking, of searching for this fulfillment that we're never going to find in this conventional reality of, obje- of objects and experiences because we're looking in the wrong place. We're still caught in that fixed structure of our belief system. And we, uh, we don't know how to get out or off that wheel. So what happens is that we get very busy. We get very busy and very active. And that's what, you know, when we're very identified with our mental state, that's what we're caught up in is that activity, which we can experience as agitation and as anxiety and analyzing and planning and fantasizing and, you know, trying to get something to happen that's going to give us some kind of inner fulfillment but we get very, very busy and active and, and very exhausted. And then we have to rest and do things that are nourishing for us. And then we start getting busy again. But until we actually start to question this activity, we're going to just keep going around and round and round and round being very frustrated and very disappointed that we're not actually getting anywhere. We can feel very, very hopeless, maybe even despairing at times, like nothing's working, nothing's happening. We get very busy with manipulating. And I want to talk about this manipulating, manipulating reality, because that's really what the ego self is engaged with, is manipulating. Because it's the only strategy that the ego self knows. And the basic belief of the ego self is, if I don't do it, who will? Does anybody know that one? If I don't take responsibility for this, it's not going to get done. Right? I have to do it. So whatever the it is, whatever we think needs fixing, you know, and usually we think we need fixing or I need fixing. You know, I'm the one who's broken and I need to fix myself. And so we get very busy with that self-improvement improving we have to improve ourselves improve ourselves but again we're not you know unless we look at our situation in a completely different way we're not going to get anywhere we just keep going round and round and round and round so much of what we look at actually in the meditation practice is the way that we're manipulating our reality We want to really look at that to see what am I doing that I'm not able to just let go and rest into my experience, be with my experience without fighting, without resisting, without suppressing, without judging, without blaming, (laughs) without rejecting. All these strategies that we have to try to change our experience because we don't know yet, if we're caught in this, that what we need to do is let go. Let go. And we began speaking about that this morning, 
Anna was giving beautiful instructions about this, mo mo this morning, how we need to let go into our experience, to come into our body, to feel directly what's here, to see if we can put down the fight, put down the struggle, put down the wish that something else was happening, I was somewhere else, I am a different person, I'm having different experiences, whatever it is that our mind is telling us that needs to happen, if we can just stop for a moment, stop all that activity, all those strategies, and just take a deep breath and let go. Be here for what's happening. A simple, a simple example of this is some years ago when I was sitting a three-month retreat. And this was probably one of the first times that I had this kind of insight. You know, we, 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 this is called insight meditation, and so it means through this bringing mindfulness to our experience and really examining and investigating what's happening, we can start to have insights into what's, what this reality is truly about. And so I remember this one, one time on this retreat, early in the early years of my practice, I was feeling really, really, well, a lot of times I was feeling this, but this particular time I was feeling really grouchy and really irritated and frustrated and uh, kind of just, you know, that moody kind of grouchy. Does anybody know this feeling? <laughs> you know, just kind of that irritable feeling. And it was going on for the day, for a lot of the day, and I just, I wanted to figure out some way to get over it because I'm meditating and why is this lasting so long? And, you know, if I was really practicing well or if I could get more concentrated or if I could let go or, you know, the getting engaged in trying to find a strategy to change my experience because it wasn't okay with me that I was feeling this. And I really wanted to have a different experience. And so I was really resisting and judging and blaming myself and evaluating myself and comparing to all the other yogis and, you know, really, really all this stuff that I was putting on top of my experience. And everything, it was just getting worse and more solidified and more contracted. So finally, and this is all the manipulation. This is what I'm talking about, the manipulating my experience and it's born of judgment and blame and all of this that goes into it. And so what, you know, what the teachers are saying is just pay attention. <laughs> pay attention. See what's going on. So I decided to do that. So I just sat and I said, okay, I asked myself the question, what's going on? What's going on here? Just to see if I can get a little bit more understanding. And I brought my attention fully down into my body and I felt what was here. And I noticed that I had a pain in my side. And it was a really one of those kind of niggly little pains, you know, the kind that you, it could kind of almost go out of your radar, but it's still there and it just bothers you, you know, it's just like niggly. And when it, once I felt it, I realized that's what had been going on. It's just that I had this niggly little thing that I didn't 
wasn't paying attention to, wasn't really in my consciousness, I wasn't really mindful of my body enough at that time, and there was this resistance to it going on in my mind. I didn't want to feel it. I didn't want want it to be there. And I wasn't even conscious of that whole thing. And then when I brought my attention more fully down into my experience and felt it, everything just started to relax because I was actually attending to the thing that was actually causing me the difficulty. But I could see at that time how I could keep building so much up on top of it, judging myself for feeling irritated, blaming myself because I wasn't a good enough practitioner, trying to get more concentrated, trying all these things. But all I needed to do was really sit and feel into my experience. And this was one of the first kind of insights, the first kind of doorways into this revelation that I can investigate, I can kind of examine, I kind of can sense doing it. At that time it was a, a kind of body sweep. I just, just sort of did a body sweep to just to see what's here. What can I feel? What can I know in my experience? And something started to open up for me. So this strategy, it's a different strategy from the one of the ego that tries to manipulate, but this skillful means of inquiry, investigation, which is the one that we're practicing here. We bring this mindful awareness to our experience and we, because we were curious. We want to know what's happening, what's going on. Seeing reality in a very simple and bare way. Kind of peeling back the layers as much as we can just to see what's here in the simplicity. And as I, it wasn't that that pain was any less, it wasn't any, it wasn't more agreeable. It was just that I was holding it more in my awareness and I wasn't fighting it, I wasn't resisting it. I wasn't suppressing it. I had that now, more of me, in my consciousness. It's a simple example, but I think it's one that kind of shows really what's being pointed to. Because then I can come more fully into reality and say, this is the condition that's arising. This is what's here now. I may not like it. I may not want it. But this is what's here right now. Julie was talking about recognition. We're really very much talking about this recognition of the true reality. Peeling back the layers of our mental activity of the judgment and the blame and the expectation and the desire and the wanting. And just what's here now? The dropping, this dropping we've been speaking about dropping more fully into our experience. I'm not overriding what's here. I'm not trying to overcome what's here. And in this way, I am regarding my experience. I am not disregarding my experience. I'm bringing full regard, which means I am bringing full respect. I am honoring the whole, the totality of what's here.
we might think that this is a kind of acceptance. But even in this way, acceptance is already maybe too much doing. Because then we can easily then pick up more busyness and say, well, I need to accept, right? It can become another doing if I can just get to acceptance. Or if I can just accept my experience, then things will be all right. So in that way, I'm not even really talking about acceptance. I'm talking about a mindful attention, a quality of presence that has an interest and a curiosity with it, that, that comes forth with it, that wants to be intimate with what's here. It's not that I want to be intimate. Awareness itself is already intimate with what's here. And so as I open to consciousness, to awareness, to presence, that already brings forth that quality of curiosity, of interest, of intimacy, of connection. It's already here as I let go of all that mental busyness, that ego activity that wants to resist and uh, uh, struggle and fight and try to manipulate reality to match some kind of idea or fantasy or ideal that I have about what I think is supposed to be happening, rather than can I just find out what is happening? (laughs) What is actually happening? That's what we are asking ourselves now. There's this lovely piece um, from Arthur Miller from his play called After the Fall. And this play was written uh, during World War II in London, where he was when the, uh, uh, during the bombings of the war. And this is what Arthur Miller wrote. I think it's a mistake to ever look for hope outside of oneself. One day the house smells of fresh bread the next of smoke and blood. One day you faint because the gardener cuts his finger off. Within a week, you're climbing over corpses of children bombed in the subway. What hope can there be if that is so? I tried to die near the end of the war. The same dream returned each night until I dared not, go, dared not to go to sleep and grew quite ill. I dreamed I had a child, and even in Even in the dream, I saw it was my life, and it was an idiot, and I ran away. But it always crept onto my lap again, clutched at my clothes, until I thought, if I could kiss it, whatever in it was my own, perhaps I could sleep. And I bent to its broken face, and it was horrible, but I kissed it. I think one must finally take one's life in one's arms. Turning towards, that's what I'm speaking about, this turning towards, turning into life, meeting life, engaging with life, and not life just out there, that's part of it, 
but the life in here. The life in here that we so much want to neglect at times. Disregard. Ways we disregard ourselves. Hafiz, this wonderful poet that many of you know, Sufi poet, he says, don't surrender your loneliness, your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. Don't surrender your, lonely, your loneliness so quickly. So this is the invitation for us. We, we, we so easily want to turn away. Well, it's the ego self that wants to turn away because it feels hard or, 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 or our situation feels painful or challenging and the fear comes and it feels like it's too much. And yet, sometimes we can turn towards it. Or we can look at what's happening. We can try to understand what's happening that we want to turn away. We want to turn away from ourselves. We want to turn away from the world. We want to turn away from other people. It's not that it's wrong. It's not that it's bad to turn away. We just want to understand. If that's the only strategy for us, is there, a, is there another way? Is there another way to be? Is there another way to understand and perceive what's actually going on? I want to, debating about telling you this story, I think I want to tell you this story because it was, it was coming through a lot today for me to tell you the story about um, this time that I was in India. And I've spent a lot of time in India. Some of you know that. I, I had the, um, either the good fortune or the not so good fortune. You know, either, for those of you who've been to India, you might, you might understand what I mean by that. But I, I was going there for about 15 years every winter for two or three months. So I spent a lot of time there, and so I've had lots of different experiences um, in probably what I would call one of the most challenging places in the world. Uh, has the extremes of tremendous beauty beyond anything this body-mind can even imagine, and some of the most horrific pain. And some of you might have seen the, the movie of the year, Slumdog Millionaire, and and you'll understand what I mean if you, say, if you see it. And if you haven't seen it, just beware that it's a very hard movie. They're building it up as if it's a very uh, great movie, but it's an extremely hard movie to watch because of this very uh, contradiction of the extreme beauty and also the horrific uh, uh, violence that goes on there. And so, much of my practice has happened in India in these extremes 
uh, finding myself in ex these, these very, very difficult and challenging situations where my being just didn't have the capacity to open to a lot of what I was experiencing. But then because I had a lot of judgment and uh, expectation for myself of how I was supposed to be, there was a lot of struggle in myself in the years that I was going there, that I was supposed to be open. I was supposed to be able to, you know, walk uh, like my ideal of the great mother, you know, just have be ex extremely compassionate and loving and, you know, be able to, you know, like a saint, you know, like, like touch all the beggars and heal them. And, you know, I mean, all of us have different ways we idealize our spiritual selves. Um, and that was mine. So, of course, since I wasn't that, I would constantly be in this struggle with myself or when I was encountering different situations. So this some, some years ago, um, about 10 years ago, um, which is one of the last years I was going to India, I, I stopped after 15 years. Um, one of my friends who, who had traveled there a lot, an English woman, she really wanted me. She said, you've been to India so many times, but you haven't really been right with the people you know, right in the villages. You haven't really seen real India. And she was an a activist, social activist, and so she really would work right with the, with the, with the uh, poorest of the poor and in some of the very difficult situations there. And so, so she said, let's go. I'm going to take you. We're going to go to uh, down to Madras, and I really want to take you and have you meet some of the people who are working firsthand with people. And so, so I did, and we, we were in this village outside of Madras, and she, we stayed with this doctor, this woman who was a doctor there. And this woman was a, a, a pioneer, and she was working in the hospital with uh, in the, uh, a neonatal unit, uh, of which there really aren't any in India. There aren't uh, uh, units that work with uh, babies who are born with difficulties because, I, I hate to say this, but there's not enough value put on the babies. And so they're usually not attended to. So this doctor had so much incredible compassion for this situation that she fundraised and used her own money to build this neonatal unit in this hospital. And so my friend Caroline and I and this doctor one evening, we're going to go visit her neonatal unit in this Indian hospital. And I don't know if you, you know, Indian hospitals are not a really easy place to be. I mean, it's very, very unwieldy, uh, no real walls, you know, everything's out in the open, you know, the beds and the people, everything's just happening out in the open. Um, and so we went at it was dark, we were going to the hospital, and we went into this little unit, the neonatal unit. And there were about 15 little babies in these uh, handmade kind of plexiglass incubators um, with all this handmade kind of tubes and everything. They were just, you know, just newborns. And, uh, and in another room were the mothers. Indian women who were um, young women, and they were there just to 
see what was happening with their, their babies. And this one doctor, this one doctor was tending to all of this and very, very little money. And they were just going around and looking at the situation of these babies. And these were the ones who were having some difficulty, these babies. And so it was night, and it was an Indian hospital, and it was the first time that I had been in kind of a very dire situation like this. And I saw the babies, and then the mothers who were in a lot of distress. And, it, and you might want to know, too, that in India, if a mother loses their baby, they're usually cast out of the family because that means that they're um, unclean. They uh, gave birth to a baby that wasn't strong and healthy, so they get cast out, and then they live as peasants. They, they become homeless. And so here are these, these women who are sitting in the other room, not knowing their fate, depending on what was going to happen with these babies. And then I'm, I'm walking around looking at these babies who are in distress, who hardly have any care. This one doctor who is trying to manage this entire situation, and these are just only a few select babies, and I could feel myself just starting to collapse. I could just feel the energy just starting to drain out of me, like, I don't know if I can actually handle being here. This was too much for me, this way, way, and I could just feel, I almost felt like I was going to start to pass out. It's like, I can't take this in, especially knowing the whole context of the situation and the fate of these mothers and everything. And I, and, and usually, this was, my practice was pretty strong at this point. And usually, I would have had some kind of split that would have happened. Like, I'm supposed to be, right? I should be able to manage this situation. I'm the one who has been practicing compassion and love and steadiness and wisdom and strength, and I should be able to stand up to this situation. And I could feel that pressure, which is ego, I could feel the ego coming down and pressing on top of me, creating a kind of resistance to the actuality of what was happening, which was, truth was, I didn't, I didn't have a lot right at that moment to be able to handle this. I was starting to collapse, and then the ego coming in, just pushing on top of me, you, you know, you have to look like this, you have to show up like this. And because I had enough presence, and I had enough awareness. I could sense what was happening, and I knew what I needed to do, and that was to leave. I needed to walk out and to find a place. I found a place in the next room where I could sit down and tend to myself. I couldn't be the one who could tend to all the babies and to all the mothers and to the doctor and to my friend and kind of hold that situation in a very big way. I needed to attend to myself. That's what was true. That was my capacity at that time. And because I had enough practice at that time, I could hear that and attend to that. And so I went into the other room and I sat down and I held myself, and I just let myself weep. I just cried, and I cried, and I cried. And as I did that, the compassion that I initially felt for myself just started to spread out. 
And it went out to all the babies, to the mothers, to the doctor, to the whole hospital, to the whole situation in India. And I could just feel this spreading of my love, of my compassion. Just as I started to go in, thinking I was collapsing, actually, it was exactly what I needed to do to contact the love that I was not able to contact out there. And then it just spread. This immensity of heart and love and holding and support. And it was so powerful. It was so powerful to, and surprising, (laughs) incredibly surprising that I would find the access to it. None of my mind was telling me something completely different. Ego had a whole different strategy, had a whole different story for how I was supposed to stand up, show myself to be a certain way. But the truth was, the true access was completely other than that. The true access came from the listening, came from the presence, came from the following through, taking the action to what my heart was saying, to what the, the deeper guidance, the deeper wisdom was saying, and followed that, and then everything opened up. And it was such a transformative moment for me. It was so powerful that made me understand what this is really all about. And it has to do with real care, really paying respect, paying reverence, paying deep regard for what is happening for us. Because it's in that that everything opens up. It's not what we think. It's not what we imagine. Because everything else is from the ego mind. It's just it's ego mind trying to make sense of this reality. And it can't because it doesn't, it's not in contact with reality. (laughs) This ego mind, these ideas and beliefs that we have about how reality is, is only going to take us further away from true reality. So, So that's why we have to do these kinds of practices that we do to see if we can just break up this whole way of understanding, of perceiving, of viewing. We cannot do it in our rational way, in our linear way, in our analytical way, our mental way. This to me is the access to the feminine, the access to the great mother. It's the letting go of the mental constructs. But not forever. It's just until we see them for what they are, just as with mountains are mountains, then we see thoughts as thoughts. But they're no longer just thoughts. They're not like fixed, substantial reality. They're just They arise, thoughts arise and they disappear. Things come and go, they come and go, but there's nothing substantial about them. They're not actually pointing to anything that's really true, ultimately. 
Absolutely. So I want us to ask this question for us, for ourselves. What do we disregard? What are we disregarding? What of ourselves do we think is not valuable, not worthwhile in some way, whether it's a some of our certain kinds of emotions or mind states or our, our bodies, parts of our bodies, people in our lives, things that we have. How are we disregarding? And do we need to disregard, and I'm using this word disregard as a kind of pushing away, kind of this frivolous kind of not really being very thoughtful about what we're disregarding. Because when we really look from a different vantage point, this vantage point of awareness, wisdom, clarity, this vantage point that is not just our small ego mind, we start to open up. Everything starts to look differently. And you've all had this experience. Everything starts to look differently. One yogi said in the, a small group today that everything seems like it's glittering like jewels. Everything starts to take on a whole different shine. And it's not that we things look differently because we have it all kind of now establish what's good and what's bad and what's this and what's that. And it's because everything takes on a different sheen. Even pain. So I want to, as I'm coming to the end of my talk here, I want to read another poem by Mary Oliver. Anna read one earlier. I think Mary Oliver She's just amazing. <laughs> She's, she has this vantage point. She sees in the way that we have been pointing towards. And, and this poem is called The World. And, I, and, and each time I, I re read it, which I've only just discovered it just a, about a month ago, I mean, I just I feel all warm inside. So I'll read it to you. She says, I would like to write a poem about the world that has in it nothing fancy, but it seems impossible. Whatever the subject, the morning sun glimmers in it. The tulip feels the heat and flaps its petals open and becomes a star. The ants bore into the peony bud and there is a dark pinprick well of sweetness. As for the stones on the beach, forget it. Each one could be set in gold. So I tried to shut my eyes. I tried with my eyes shut, but of course the birds were singing. And the aspen trees were shaking the sweetest music out of their leaves. And that was followed by, guess what? A momentous and beautiful silence. 
as comes to all of us in little earfuls if we're not too hurried to hear it. As for spiders, how the dew hangs in their webs even if they say nothing or seem to say nothing. So fancy is the world, who knows, maybe they sing. So fancy is the world, who knows, maybe the stars sing too. And the ants and the peonies and the warm stones, so happy to be where they are, on the beach, instead of being locked up in gold. So happy to be where they are, instead of being locked up in gold. So it's that last line for me that actually resolves the conundrum. (laughs) Because any kind of idea, any kind of image, any kind of structure, statue, is going to be kind of like being locked up in gold. And who wants to be locked up when you can be just where you are and be free? Not only be free, but to be the manifestation of the Great Mother, just as you are. And if, right in this moment, you're feeling skeptical, (laughs) let that be there too, because that's also a manifestation of this great mother. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. May all beings awaken to great wisdom. May all beings awaken to great love. May all beings be liberated and free. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.